Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. Anyways, so we're going to be in Leviticus 3 tonight and pick up where we left off as usual. And um, we're doing the third of the sacrifices. So as a reminder, we did in Leviticus 1 was the burnt offering, which was the atonement for sin, voluntary offering. It's not required. You enter in by the blood and it counts for your sin. You are completely atoned for in this act of atonement that you do. Then you add the gift or the grain offering, which was this act of fellowship and a way to support the priests. And you gave a grain offering. You gave it out of your bounty. First fruits, which later becomes tithing, is a part of that grain offering. It's just that standard gift that you give week in, week out, through your whole life. Now we're at number three, which is the peace offering, which is my favorite. Um, if you wanted to, like, we'll get into it, but essentially the peace offering is to hold fast to following God and to assemble with the other saints. You get together with people and you gather. You eat food with them. So what we had tonight, the fact that that was coming out of a budget somewhere, that's a peace offering that my wife and I like to make, and Danny makes, because she helps out with the food too. So it's a peace offering. You take some of your stuff. It's not tithing to the church, but the purpose of it is to assemble with the saints, to assemble with other people of God and to eat some food together and have that kind of thing. And there's rules to it in the mosaic thing that we'll get into. Um, but I think going into the peace offering, a nice way to think about it is Leviticus 7.11 calls it a Thanksgiving. It's Thanksgiving dinner, only they do it all year at different times. Like it's all the time, but it's Thanksgiving dinner. Let's have a feast. Let's really celebrate. Let's plan for it, set aside time for it. We put it on our calendars. And when you put something on your calendar, that's a sacrifice. You're giving something to God when you make time for something. So that's what it is. The word holy it gets used a ton, and it kind of picks up here. The goal here is holiness. Um, if you think about it, it only took God about a year to get the Israelites out of Egypt. It's going to take him 40 years to get Egypt out of the Israelites. There's a Once you get saved, there's a lifetime of holiness development that happens where you start to get your language salted with, with the grace of the language, which we covered last week. And the goal is to move towards holiness, and the tabernacle is just a foundation for all of this to happen. So that's where we're at in Leviticus. We're using that tabernacle to do these things. So verse 1, when his offering, or your Bible might have the word oblation, which is one of my favorite King James words, oblation. It just sounds good to say it. You can try it at home in the mirror. Um, Oblation, the word meaning for that is offering. So some of your Bibles might just use that word, offering, which we know when we're familiar with. When his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, 
and he offers it of the herd, whether it male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord, and he shall lay his hand on the head of the offering and kill it at the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall sprinkle the blood all around the altar. So the word peace there in the Hebrew is shalem, not shalom. Um, shalem is offering thanks or thanksgiving. It's a praise or appreciation for something. You could argue, if you wanted to, that it's very close to the word and has the same root word as shalom, which is peace with other people. And shalem is kind of a, an appreciation for the peace that you have with God. So it's looking backwards versus present tense. In the Greek, that's going to be the word assemble or that same kind of bringing together idea um, is going to be used too. So when you see peace in the New Testament, it has an extremely similar meaning to the word peace in the Old Testament. But it's not like peace on earth where people aren't making war with each other. It's more of a, a unifying or assembling. And the word means to bring something together. So if I have peace with you, it means we're unified. We're together on something. We're on the same page. Um, making peace, then, is the burnt offering. The peace offering is to celebrate the peace that you have. See the difference? The practice is really the same. When you just read those verses, it sounds a lot like a burnt offering, right? Put your hand on the head, same way. Peace offerings and burnt offerings often go hand in hand because there is this idea that atonement is part of what makes the peace. That whole putting your hand on the animal, pushing your hand into it, watching it die, having its blood get sprinkled, that's part of peace with God is that your sins are atoned for. But the main purpose of the peace offering, one of the biggest differences, is that you're not going to burn up the animal and let it rise and smoke to the Lord. This animal, you're going to eat most of it. So we'll get into how to eat cows in a second. It's still consistent with the burnt offering in that it should be without blemish or tamem in the Hebrew in verse 1, which means it should be complete or whole. I think that's a big deal theologically because it doesn't mean that the animal has to be perfect. It means the animal has to be whole and healthy. And we've been talking a lot about sin in this house this week, and I think theologically this is one of the things I struggle with in the church is I grew up thinking I had to be perfect. And that's not the biblical concept I read when I look at it carefully. I have to be, or I should be, without sin. And that's very different from being perfect, because I am a sinner, present constant, and I can sin, definitive, but I also can live without sin, too. Or I cannot conduct more sin, and simply the state of being a sinner gets covered with that burnt offering. And if I live without sin, live under those Ten Commandments, I'm not murdering people, I'm not killing people, I'm not coveting people's things, I don't use the Lord's. I mean, there's only there's a limited number of things that if you don't do these things and you do do these things, you're at peace with God. And then that should have this kind of benefit in your life or a good thing. And that's a really tough concept for us humans to get our head around because we like black and white kinds of pictures. Um, so without blemish means to be complete, sound, healthy, um, so you're not looking for a perfect animal. You're looking for a healthy animal. You're not giving your leftovers to God, right? So holiness then is this idea of a lifetime of getting rid of sin out of your life and having the Lord do something in your heart where you don't do it. So when we come to God, we bring the best we have and we bring our whole and our, our, our wholeness to God if we can and we pray for God for wholeness. And wholeness and holiness then take on very similar concepts, right? To be complete, to be useful, um, to deal with sin if you have it, but that's next week, um, and to be at peace. And that is what we're looking for. That's the reasonable service to God. Romans 12.1, I beseech you, I beg you, 
brothers, brethren, by the mercies of God, so by the mercies of God is the pathway to this, that you present, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. That's what we're supposed to do. It likewise applies to Jesus, 1 Peter 1.19, with the precious blood of Jesus as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Jesus went to the cross without sin as an active thing in his life and without sin in his life. He was actually perfect and without blemish. Consistent that we lay the hand on, saw that in Leviticus 1, that recognition. The bloody mess is consistent. They mention the blood, so there's blood everywhere. And if they're doing these sacrifices all day, you imagine how saturated the soil gets, how those the, the veil gets just covered in blood, right? The tabernacle door covered in blood, the altar covered in blood. There's a foreshadowing with all that blood of Jesus on the cross that it's not a pretty picture, right? And it, depending on what denomination you grew up in, Jesus was either on the cross in front of the room or not on the cross in front of the room. The reality was it was a bloody mess, and nobody really has a bloody mess up in front of their church. But at the tabernacle, that's exactly what it was because life or blood is what it costs to deal with our sin. There's a price to pay. And that gets put in front of everybody, front and center, right in front of the tabernacle. Peace, then, is in the shadow of the reality that sin has been dealt with. We don't get peace with God until our sin has been dealt with or atoned for. And God sees the sin, and I think in this thing, they can see it all over the place. That's why it gets splashed or sprinkled. Um, and Jesus talked about it, Mark 14, 24. And he said to them, Jesus, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. So Jesus put the idea of blood right up in front of his disciples too. You will bleed. There is a blood that needs to be shed to atone for sin. So there will be neither fat nor blood. There's an excess idea here we're going to get to, which I think is pretty cool. Um, okay, this is just geek stuff, right? The word blood in the Hebrew is actually damn. So then it occurred to me the Brits have it right when they say that bloody, you know, and they say it like a swear word. We just replace it and use the Hebrew word in our language. And we say that damn blah, 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 blah. That's probably not the case. That's just me seeing a really, that's, I know that's a stretch. But I thought it was kind of cool when I saw it. I'm like, oh, that word is damn in the Hebrew. And I wonder if that's where we don't have the N. It's D-A-M instead of D-A-M-N. And it's dom instead of damn. And, you know, you never know where words come from. Um, and I just thought I'd throw it in there just as a small little thing. Um, that had nothing to do with anything. But I put it in there anyways because I'm like, I got to fit this in somewhere because it's just too cool that the word blood in the Hebrew is dam and, or dam or however you want to pronounce it. There's one big difference here that you've, I hope you've noticed right away. In the burnt sacrifice, it, it could only be a male. And the burnt sacrifice, the only worthy sacrifice was Jesus who was male and it fits. But on the peace offering, I hope you noticed it could be male or female. The gender thing goes away here in part because anyone should be able to benefit from peace offering. And if you want to look at the New Testament connection, which I'm going to get into a lot, peace offering is more associated with us giving our lives to God than for Jesus giving his life for us, right? So it's appropriate then that that gets to be, there's, there's no distinction there. In fact, that idea that male and female goes away, you all know the verse in, in Galatians 328 where it says there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither bond nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. When it comes to this, that doesn't matter anymore. And that symbolism starts all the way back here in the New Testament. 
So we give our lives. There's a burnt offering that happens. Notice in verse 5, if you look down just a little bit, that the fat's going to get thrown on the wood um, with the burnt offering. So they actually can go together in the act of burning things. Um, and we lose our life and part of our life goes with Jesus. Like part of our life we lose and it gets burnt up. But then there's part of our life that gets kept here for fellowship with the saints. So it all kind of fits. Whoever saves their life shall lose it. Whoever loses their life for my name's sake shall save it. And in this case, the peace offering, we're going to lose our life. Um, when the peace offering is made in a redemptive sense, which we're going to see later in Leviticus, and it's treated as a redemption sacrifice or it's intimately connected with a burnt sacrifice, the male-only thing comes back into place. And I think that's because God cares about the pattern. He wants this to fit with Jesus being the sacrifice according to the letter of the law. But in this case, where it's just a peace offering in general, it's male or female. Verse 3. Then he shall offer from the sacrifice of the peace offering an offering made by fire to the Lord, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that's on its entrails, the two kidneys and the fat that is on them by the flanks, and the fatty lobe attached to the liver above the kidneys, he shall remove... And Aaron's son shall burn it on the altar with a burnt sacrifice. So there's where it goes burning up, which is on the wood that is on the fire. As an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. And you're thinking, oh no, Dickers is going to get into biology tonight. I'm going to sum up the biology this way. No, I'll get into the biology too. In general, God, these parts that we're talking about biologically are the insides. God wants the innermost parts to be thrown on the altar. We're talking about that stuff where you got to really dig to the middle of the animal to dig this stuff out. And the fatty lobe on the liver, you actually have to know how to butcher an animal to get the parts that we're talking about. So there's that. Another piece of this, which you can, you can do what you want with, the parts that they just described are all the parts where a lot of the diseases get stored. So the parts that are getting pulled out of this animal are the unhealthy or the corrupted parts or the parts that would carry things like tapeworm, a lot of... Um, uh, abdominable diseases get carried on those intestines right there. So he's pulling out the parts where even just scientifically, this would be really healthy for the Jewish people to not eat these parts. That said, the kidneys and the liver in this is, in the Hebrew means to yearn or to desire. So when we say we have heart, it can mean our biological heart, but it can also mean like our personality, our will, our desire for things. For them, they didn't say their heart. They went even deeper into the cavity of the body. Things came from their liver. And it meant desire. It means to yearn. So you would liver for things. You would have a liver for something. And it sounds weird in our language, but you should just know that. It's the source of all desire and will. It also removes the, the role of the liver is a little different than the heart. The liver and the kidneys remove the t poisons and toxins from your system. So if you're thinking in terms of a spiritual aspect to this, you're talking about the organs that remove the garbage out of your body and they get it out of there. So because of that, you have all these places. The, the part above the kidney that they're talking about is what we would call today the call of the liver or the table of the liver. It's the muscle that the liver sits on that separates it from the stomach. Um, in the Greek, it's actually the word table. Um, and all those, uh, those organs, those tissues have leakage and seepage from the liver. So if the liver and the stomach talk to each other, you would die from poison infection. So that call separates 
or distinguishes between the poisonous parts of your innards and the healthy part that's processing the new food. Make sense? I'll come back to that. Difference number two is where the food goes. It gets eaten. So there's no mention made here of the other cuts of meat. We've removed certain things in verses three through five, and it's a very small amount of a cow, right? Just little pieces of fat here and there. Later, we're going to find out it gets used as food. God takes the fat, the well-fed part. Another way to interpret this is the fat of the animal is the best part, which happens to be bad for us. But God wants the best part of that animal to be put over here because it's not good for us, kind of like too much sugar, right? But the fat gives the flavor. There's lots of fat left in the animal. So if you don't get pharisaical about this, it doesn't mean you can't eat fat because there's tons of fat that's not talked about in these verses, like the fat that goes with bacon, perfectly part of this thing. What's left? In fact, I think it might be nice for us to understand what is not mentioned in this verse when you get to the cuts of meat on your standard from the herd cow. First of all, you have the prime rib. You have the sirloins, the top sirloin, the bottom sirloin, and the tender sirloin. You got the T-bones, the porterhouse, the tri-tip, the flank, the filet mignon, the brisket is still left over. We still have brisket to eat. The ribeye, the round flank, the shank, the rib, and the chuck meat. All still good to go. What could possibly happen with all of that meat that's left over? Not to mention the hide flanks and the bacon that comes out of the butt, right? What happens with these is they get eaten, and they get eaten by the people of Israel. So when these festivals happen, they're cooking all the best parts of the meat. This, they didn't have grinders for burger because they didn't have an industrial age where they would grind thing, all the junk up and turn it into burger. Talking about the good meat, the stuff that we pay a lot of money for at the steakhouse. God doesn't need that meat because all the beasts of the forest are his, the cattle upon the thousand hills, they're God's. He doesn't need food. He doesn't eat. What he knows we can have fellowship with him is to put the flavor of a porterhouse steak in our mouth and say, thank you, Lord God, that's delicious. That's part of the fellowship with God is to eat and have these feasts. A lot of times when people are considering a life of faith, what they're considering is what they're going to give up by becoming a Christian. Well, if I become a Christian, I have to stop doing this and I have to stop doing that. That's a difficult discussion because you try to explain to them it's like Plato's allegory of the cave. You're trying to say, no, there's light outside. There's a beautiful life of faith and fellowship and amazing things on the other side of this. You don't give up sin. You start to see sin for what it is, and you don't want it anymore. In fact, we had, uh, we, we've known people that come into the church, and they're, they feel guilty because they're still smoking. But there isn't, really isn't any biblical passages that say, thou shalt not smoke. So you should take care of your body. It's the temple of God, yes. And most Christians at some point feel like, I should deal with the smoking thing because it's not good for my body and I want to take, and you just start to, you want to give it up. But we keep telling her like, giving up smoking does not make you a Christian. And getting through this idea of like, just smoke to your heart's content until the Lord starts to take away that desire to do it. And then we can start talk, talking nicotine patches. But until you want to start quitting smoking, don't worry about it, right? What's on the other side of faith is this life of peace and joy and atonement and freedom from the guilt that sin gives to us. And you get to be part of the body of believers. Like, go to a good church and see what fellowships are like when they hang out with each other. Come have baked ziti with us. 
You don't even have to be a Christian. Just eat food with us and see what's on the other side. I think that's the peace offering. It's one of the ways God says, here's what's on the inside of our fellowship is this kind of joy and celebration and peace, where what's on the outside of the fellowship is the turmoil, the anxiety, the stress about the next job, all that stuff the world wants you to weigh your brain down with. You can have that. I'll take this. Porterhouse, T-bone, all those things. Massive feast in the, in, the, in the Old Testament that we're going to see. The first one that you should note is First Kings 8, uh, verse 63, massive chapter. We'll do it in one week. And Solomon offered a sacrifice of peace offerings, which he offered up unto the Lord. Two and 20,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the children had dedicated the house of the Lord, and they had a big feast. They ate all that meat. Um, and there's rules we'll get to where you have to eat it within two days. So it's like one of those challenges where they say, can you eat 13-ounce steaks? And, you know, if you do, you'll get your meal for free. Well, they got their meal for free, and they could eat all the meat they could because it would just go to waste. They had to burn it up if they didn't eat it. Second Chronicles 30, 24 is another one of these big peace offerings. Hezekiah, king of Judah, did give to the congregation 1,000 bullocks and 7,000 sheep, and the princes gave to the congregation, the assembly, the people meeting in God's name, a thousand bullocks and 10,000 sheep and a great number of priests sanctified themselves. So it's also initiation day for the junior priests, right? So they get sanctified, they have a big feast. That's not a shabby life. That's awesome. That's a nice break from herding sheep and, and taking care of your crops as you come in for a massive feast. Growing up, the little churches all over the Midwest would have potlucks on Sunday. Right? You do you study the word, you worship, you study the word, then you all have a big potluck where everybody brings their favorite recipe and they all compete to see who gets to bring the salad and that sort of thing. And my dad, he'd always just go to the grocery store and bring the rolls. And I'm kinda like, you know, it's not very exciting, but somebody needed to get the rolls too. So people bring what they can and they bring what they're capable of and you have a big feast and you eat together. And as kids we just run all over the place and, you know, steal off the candy plates and it's that's life together in faith. That's better than what the world has to offer. Stress, anxiety. Peace with God has an overflow effect. If you are doing the burnt and grain offering, then the joy overflows. But the burnt offering and the, the, the grain offering come first. When those things are taken care of, you don't have a lot of guilt left in your life and you don't have to compromise on holiness. You become more whole and holy by doing those first two and then you celebrate it and you let other people come in. There are options, just like with the burnt offering. Verse 6, I'm going to go through these pretty quick and make a couple more points. If his offering as a sacrifice of a peace offering to the Lord is of the flock, whether male or female, he shall offer it without blemish. If he offers a lamb as his offering, then he shall offer it before the Lord, and he shall lay his hand on the head of the offering and kill it before the tabernacle of meeting, and Aaron's son shall sprinkle its blood all around the altar. It's used then for uh, for lambs can be part of it. Verse 9, then he shall offer from the sacrifice of the peace offering as an offering made by fire to the Lord. It's fat and the whole fat tail. You should know when it says the fat tail that sheep in this part of the world had really fat tails. And that fat tail was seen as one of the choicest parts of the, the, the sheep that you could eat. Um, and it would weigh 15 of the 60 pounds. It was a big tail. So that part, you're going to chop off the tail and you're going to you know, remove it close to the backbone. And the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that's on the entrails, so that's similar to the cow, verse 10. 
two kidneys and the fat that is on them by the flanks and the fatty lobe attached to the liver above the kidneys. He shall remove and the priest shall burn them on the altar as food and an offering made by fire to the Lord is how you do it. So this looks a lot like the cow. The small difference is the tail. Uh, God's going to burn all that up. Here the food's added. A lamb of the flock, before it just said in chapter one and two, it just said of the flock. In chapter three, it says a lamb of the flock. So it's the first use of the word lamb in Leviticus. We'll come back to this. There's a third distinguishing feature here in that I could have pointed out in the last one, but I wanted to keep moving through the chapter. The third key difference between the burnt offering and this offering is that there's a separation process. And I hope you picked up on that. When you take the whole animal and put it on the wood and burn it up, there's no distinguishing. There's no judgment. You just do it. It's a binary. You burn the entire cow. But in the peace offering, there's this process of putting your hands in the bloody thing and pulling this out and pulling that out and knowing something about biology and doing that kind of work of distinguishing. So removing the fat, that stored energy, that tail of the lamb, um, had to do with sorting the animal out. And God asks for those innermost parts. He wants those to be the sacrifice. The fat here, I also wanted to point out, these are really lean animals. These are not corn-fed, live-in-a-barn-their-whole-life animals. These are open-range, grass-fed, super lean. So when they say fatty, it's not like the kind of fat that I have on my gut. It's the fatty part that comes with very lean animals. Um, and the priests then would get a piece of this too. One part of the animal that I didn't mention in my list of cow parts was the leg. And that's because when we get to Leviticus 7.33, the priests get that for their part of the feast. They get the legs. So in Genesis 45.18, it says, Come to me, and I will give you the good of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat the fat of the land. Well, wait a second. That sounds like fat's a good thing. Nehemiah 8.10, it says, Eat the fat and drink the sweet. Wait a sec. That sounds like the fat and maybe the honey from last week are good things. Isaiah 55.2, Let your soul delight in fatness. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, <laughs> right? Um, fat throughout the Bible seems to be an okay thing, right? Luke 15, 23, bring the fatted calf. When the prodigal son comes back, they take the fatted up calf. Why would Jewish people enjoy a fatted calf more than a mean, green, lean calf? And part of this is because God wants those fatty parts. So when you fatten the calf up, you're actually saying, I want to give more to God. And I want to take those parts and give those parts to God. And a heavier animal means better muscles to carry the weight. So believe it or not, when you put on tons of weight, some of your muscles get to be really toned because you got to carry all that weight around. So when you fatten up these animals and you do it not kind of in our modern methods, but in old school, those were the animals that were a little more mature and God takes the fat out and what's left is even better meat. Fellowship with God requires some discernment. It's not a binary. It's not just that fat is bad because a fat appears to be good, but God wants some of those good parts too. In fact, he wants the best parts. That tail, in Canaanite rituals, the tail was like the primo delicacy of that lamb. God wants that part. He wants you to give him your best in that sense. And he wants you to kill the rest of it, and really this is kind of a thing. When we deal with our own lives, it's not that binary. It's not that easy. And it's frustrating sometimes because you're like, I wish God would just tell me what to do. But part of peace with God is using your brain and having some discernment about what things in your life need to go, 
and what things in your life need to be stayed and shared with the fellowship of believers so that you can have that peace with God. Colossians 3.5, mortify, kill, therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness with which is idolatry in the same way that you look at your life and start killing off the parts of your life that are evil, what's left then is this thing that you can bring to the fellowship of believers. And that's the peace part. It's not easy. It's a discerning process, right? You have to dig into your innermost parts and find those pieces that belong to God and burn them up along with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Those parts are going to just disappear. Verse 12, and I'll make some more points about this. And if his offering is a goat, so here's another option. And by the way, goat and sheep are two different animals. <laughs> then he shall offer it before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on its head and kill it before the tabernacle of meeting. And the sons of Aaron shall sprinkle its blood all around the altar. And then he shall offer from it his offering as an offering made by fire to the Lord. The fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that's on the entrails. The two kidneys, the fat that's on them by the flanks, the fatty lobe attached to the liver above the kidneys, he shall remove, and the priest shall burn them on the altar as food, an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma, all the fat that is the Lord's. And if you haven't smelled fat burn, have some bacon this week. The sweet aroma is uh, undoubtedly wonderful. And 10,000 sweet aromas burning up throughout the day, that's a city worth of air freshener. No such thing... All the fat is the Lord's. He gets all of it. And I this idea of there are things we give to the Lord and he wants all that stuff. He wants all that stuff, that poison in our life, he wants to take it out. There's a difference between, and 1 John chapter 2 really talks about this if you want to do kind of another Bible study this week. There's a difference between being holy and seeking holiness, right? There's a difference between being a sinner and living in sin. We are sinners by nature. We are born thinking about ourselves and ourselves only. And as we mature, we think about other people more than ourselves and we become more mature. And you start to sacrifice for people. You give things up, right? I gave up pooping in my diapers and I grew up a little bit when I gave that up. But it was a very convenient way to live life. Other people cleaned me up. It was amazing when I lived that way. But just because you're born a certain way doesn't mean you live that way. There's certain things you hand over to God because he wants those things because they actually are damaging to you. If I were still wearing diapers and pooping in my diapers, it's selfish because you'd all have to smell it until somebody cleaned me up, <laughs> right? And it wouldn't help me in the workplace. Like, it, it would be something where people are like, you don't need to bring that to work. I don't need to see that action. Like, really, it's time that you keep crinkling in the middle of our meetings. <laughs> and I just say, I'm born that way. I have to be that way. I've always been this way. But that's not an excuse for growing up and discerning what in your life is worth getting rid of and what in your life is worth keeping, right? What are the things that are holy and add value and what are the things that don't add value? Sorry for the diaper example, but it's the only one I could think of because I still think like a middle schooler. There's a spiritual benefit when you give the fat, the good stuff, or the innermost stuff, or even if you give him the poison stuff, if you want to think of the liver, right? There's a benefit to that. And when we give the deep, deepest parts of ourselves to God and we give it all to him, there's no such thing as being too holy. Like our goal should be to be as holy as possible. Not holy enough to get through or just holy enough to make our guilt be assuaged but help us to get along with the rest of the world. No, I want to be so holy that I actually don't get along with certain people. 
Like, if people are lost in their sin, they shouldn't like me necessarily. I can be gracious and kind and nice, but there's something about that goal of pursuing holiness that really bothers people that aren't pursuing holiness. And if that bothers them, I'm kind of okay with that. In fact, it's kind of funny if you take it with a good sense of humor, right? Why does it bother you that I won't have a beer? Because I don't trust people that don't drink with me. Have you ever had somebody say that to you? Or maybe you just have the beer, and that's fine too, right? I, it's you got to deal with your own conscience on those things. But for me, as a teacher, I'm like, I don't need it. It's just a beverage. Forget about it. And I don't want to be able to tell my kids I don't drink because that's a thing in middle schools, right? How fast can you get to alcohol is something about how cool you are. And in public schools, that's I want to be able to say, look, I'm a grown adult, and I don't bother with that stuff. So I didn't. So I'd go out, and then you'd run into people who are like, well, if you're not drinking with us, like, what kind of person are you? And I'm like, I don't know, a person who likes my cherry Cokes? What's wrong with that? It's good flavored. It has sugar. That's not good for me. So <laughs> there's something about the pursuit of holiness or making a discerning choice in our life that people think we're judging them. And we're not judging them. We're judging ourselves. And that I'm supposed to do. Judging others, God's supposed to do. It's not my job to do that, right? I accept others with grace because they have to work out their holiness with fear and trembling all by themselves. And I can pray for them and support them in that. But just because I choose to drink cherry coke and still alcohol doesn't mean I judge people who drink alcohol. Does that make sense? You know, if God hasn't worked on your heart enough, that's not an issue in your workplace and your situation with what you're trying to do and how you're trying to live. A good whiskey is not a bad thing. It could be a fine thing, if, especially if you're visiting Scotland. And you don't have a little whiskey, you're not enjoying Scotland. There's something wrong with that because that's what they do up in that part of the world. I want to get off that topic because... <laughs> I'm off script here, and that usually gets me in trouble later when people listen to the podcast going, Dickers, what are you talking about here? Here's the purpose. We enjoy the fellowship of the saints, and we do it in such a way that we enjoy this meal with our priests, with, our, with the people that go to church with us. We have the potluck. We enjoy Thanksgiving with a very large family. And when Thanksgiving involves thousands of cows getting killed, that's Christmas um, that's a wonderful thing, and it's an amazing thing. So we remember those things. It's important for us to remember who we are in the kingdom, that God has saved us. He's pulled us out of the slavery of sin. We have, he's atoned for our sins, and now we can enjoy that. I want to go back to Hebrews, because again, we keep going through Hebrews, and I want to reread this passage, because now we can add the peace offering, which the writer of Hebrews is going through these really quick. Hebrews 10.22, Let us draw near God, with a true heart in full assurance of faith. We don't doubt our salvation. Having our hearts sprinkled, splashed from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He's talking about the burnt offering, right? Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. You're gonna hold fast to that hope. There's a gift, of gift offering, a grain offering and let us consider one another and stir up love and good works which is the purpose of this peace offering. You're going to enjoy and give things to other people. Not forsaking, and he uses the word, assembling, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as it is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Hebrews then goes on in chapter 13 to say it's to do good and to communicate and forget not for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. The purpose of sacrifices is to remember what God's done, assemble with other believers, and exhort and challenge one another towards holiness. 
This is what we're trying to do. Let's do it. Let's do it together in unity and assembly where we're a team. This is my favorite part about organized sports. You're going to like this, Matt. What organized sports teaches young people is how to be a team, how to go to bat for one another, literally, and how to do things together as a team. When you're in a workplace where you're working as a team with unity, it's an amazing place to work. And it's a fun place to be. And when you have that unity of where we're going, what we're doing, and how we're going to get there, that's an exciting kind of thing that humans naturally are drawn to. And I, it breaks my heart when the church doesn't have that feeling, that you go to church and you're with other people that are on this journey towards holiness together, and instead we're arguing about whether or not we should drink, right? It should be a pursuit of holiness that we're doing together all the time, Right? And those argument pieces are simply distractions, as Paul argues quite well in his letters, right? You can't fake this attitude. You can't come into a building and not be atoned with Christ and not be good when it comes to the grain offering or that gift offering and fake like you have peace with God. It's really not easy to do. And people that have peace with God, it's like we get a radar for each other. Like you know when you have a brother or a sister in the faith because there's a sense of unity there that comes out of it. It's hard to describe, and all you can say to people that aren't in that kingdom is to say, just come and have some barbecue with us. And maybe you'll start to see that Christians are identified by how we love one another and how we treat one another, and that's a beautiful thing. That's such a good thing, we should make it a forever statute, which is verse 17. This shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations in all your dwellings. You shall eat neither fat nor blood. In all your dwellings, the word dwelling there is the same word that we use for a sitting, a place to sit, a habitation, habitation, or even the word tabernacle. In all your tabernacles, in every place where you worship God, this is something you should do. Generations, still recognized later in the New Testament by Paul, um, we have this abounding life in Christ, is what he talks about, and it abounds in peace and that there's a sweet smell to that abounding life, that that budding, abundant lifestyle. I have FHL. That's either Philippians or Philemon, but I don't know which. Chapter 4, verse 18. But I have all... Is that Philippians? I have all, and I and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell a sacrifice acceptable and well-pleasing to God. You sent me all these gifts just to fellowship with me. So this can even be done from afar because Paul's in a jail cell. And he's like, I got your gifts. And it was a sweet smell and a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. He's basically saying, thanks for giving a peace sacrifice and having fellowship with me even though we're apart and to connect with people that are across distances. So if you have family and friends that are out of state, this is the week to call them up and tell them you love them or send them a present in the mail and do these kinds of things that Paul has a really loose, non-legalistic understanding of a peace offering, right? This is not something that has to be done in front of a temple. You know what I mean? He's got a really broad understanding of what a peace offering is, but it's a perpetual statute through all generations. And Paul is still keeping to that statute. We are even that same gift, and this is where I've said a couple times now that we are the peace offering. We give our lives to God. We give the parts of our life that are the best to the people of God, and we take the sick parts or the fat parts, and we give them to God to burn up. Second Corinthians 2.15 says, 
we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved. We are that gift to God that we give. This is a perpetual statute throughout your generations and all your dwellings. It goes on and on and on. Luke 9, 23. And he said to them all, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. It's an ongoing process. It's every day, right? Now I'm just like doing the little soundbite devotionals that are there. But the soundbite devotionals tap into a deeper truth that comes out of Leviticus 3. I tell you the truth, Luke 9.27, there be some of you standing here or sitting which shall not taste death until you see the kingdom of God. What did he mean by that? Is there parts of the kingdom of God we can see when this happens before we even have to go to heaven and see it? Because this is heaven, us hanging out, eating barbecue together, singing praises to the Lord, catching up with other Christians that have gone before us, fellowshipping and enjoying this peace. If that doesn't sound like an amazing eternity to you, then why would you want to choose God in heaven? Because this is, this is that piece of heaven we get to see, right? The church alive and doing it right. So key differences between the burnt offering and the peace offering. Difference number one, there is this idea of everyone is involved in this. Everyone gives peace offerings and we lose our life for God and we become into that kingdom. Number two, the second difference is the assembly and the feast. There's an assembly that happens with all that leftover meat. Third distinguishing feature between the burnt offering and the peace offering, and they do go hand in hand, is the idea of separation or making discerning choices to go in and pick certain things apart and to move them around. Separate the bad from the good, use judgment, use discernment. These are all good things. The purpose of the sacrifices, I'm going to jump to Isaiah 1 if you want. I'm going to read a big chunk from there. Because for me, it's like, well, why is this so important? What, what do we get out of this kind of lifestyle? And this is a lot more, notice that this is more heady. Like a burnt sacrifice, I get it. I bring my cow, I burn it up. But this peace offering involves a concept that's hard to embrace until you experience it. And it's a chicken and egg kind of thing. So I want to go to Isaiah where they've lived for generations with these sacrifices. And Isaiah talks about, okay, what this adds or what the value is to this. And he speaks on behalf of the Lord. And I'll start in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of the lambs or goats. In other words, God doesn't need these sacrifices. They're not for him. They're for us. They do something with us. You, When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? All three of the offerings we've talked about are voluntary offerings. Nobody's forcing anybody to give any of these things to God. It's free will. Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense, it's an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the calling of the assemblies, the gathering together. I cannot endure iniquity at the sacred meeting. You're bringing a bunch of sin into my house and you're thinking these sacrifices are doing something with your sin and they're not. I can't bear your sin. I don't even like the scent of it. It's not a sweet aroma, right? There's not a separation in this kind of passage. What Isaiah is pointing out is people haven't separated the sin and nastiness from their life before they come before God. And God's then rejecting their offerings, just like he reject, rejected Cain's offering. I don't want you to do these things because you think they ha they're a magic formula to make me happy. I want your heart. I want your innermost being. I want you to be a different person. And that takes a little work and a little soul searching. Verse 14 in Isaiah 1. 
Your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They're a trouble to me. I'm weary of bearing them. What do you mean? I thought the feasts were a good thing, dickers. No, when you bring, when you don't do the discerning work, God actually hates these feasts because they're hypocritical. They're false. You can't fake this stuff, right? Verse 15, when you spread out your hands, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I won't hear. Your hands are full of blood. Well, yeah, we just got done cutting the cow apart. Verse 16, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the willow. Widow, not the willow. We don't plead for willow trees. They just cut them down, get rid of them. Verse 18. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. Give me the fat, I'll give you the good stuff. You can have the great stuff. But don't bring your sin into this relationship. Verse 17, back in our chapter in Leviticus 3. This shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations and all your dwellings. We have a responsibility as priests, as people who love the Lord, as people that are of the kingdom, to take care of this part of our life. You can be, you can say the prayer of salvation. Jesus can atone for your sins, burnt offering, great. You can, you can give your tithes to church, the gift offering, the grain offering. You can faithfully give those things, but those things aren't what God wants. What he truly delights in is that fellowship that he wants with you and that hasn't changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament, right? Isaiah makes it really clear. I don't want your stupid offerings if I don't have your heart. Get rid of evil, do good. And it's so simple, but it's kind of like, it's so simple until we have to deal with our flesh and we're like, yeah, but I want to do that because I like to do that. That's the struggle. You shall eat neither fat nor blood. This is a very practical diet that would be great for better cholesterol levels practical. If you do want to get legalistic about it, he's going to have a very healthy people that populate very quickly. And in fact, Israel does populate quicker than other ancient civilizations around them. So there's a practicality to it. The primary goal of the sacrifice then, if we're looking at Isaiah, was to reason with God, to commune with him, to abide with him, right? Verse 18. To be forgiven, verse 18. To show ourselves willing and obedient to God, verse 19 to eat the good, to enjoy the abundance of God and what he offers in verse 19 of that Isaiah chapter. That's what we're here for. That's what we're doing. That's a good deal. New Testament too, the only change is Jesus is our sacrifice versus bulls, lambs, and goats. Bulls, lambs, and goats are temporary. They're images. Jesus is the real deal. He is the lamb of God. And because this is the first mention of the word lamb in Leviticus, I want to emphasize that word a little bit. It's fitting that Jesus both atones for our sins and he makes peace with us because he's in position to do it. Because if he had to pay the price for our sins and you think about this, you'd think he'd be a little angry, right? If he had if he had to on the cross endure all that suffering and pain so that I could live, I would think he would have a grudge and he'd want to make even. That would be the natural human response. Like I paid that huge price for you and you don't even say thank you until you're 16 years old. That took a long time. And you'd think there'd be a grudge we all know that the nature of Jesus that we understand is that he doesn't hold grudges. 
So it's appropriate that the person who took the sin is also the person who can make peace with us because it's him not holding grudges that makes the peace. Of course, I'm happy to have that atonement made for me. Leviticus 7 tells us they can't eat this meal on day three, on the third day. They can only eat these offerings on day one and day two. But on the third day, it's all over with, which is an interesting thing because Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, right? So there's pieces like this that are gonna that should give the Jews all the clues they need that Jesus is the Messiah. And when you imagine when the disciples are doing all their little home Bible studies after the resurrection, this is the stuff they point to and go, look, Leviticus 7, third day. But we'll get to that when we get to Leviticus 7. At his birth, um, peace gets mentioned throughout Jesus' life. At his birth, Luke 2.14, glory to God in the highest, the angels sing, and on peace, on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Peace has come to the earth. At his crucifixion, um, it says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. Our assembly, our gathering, our joining to God, our peace happened there too. And by his stripes, we are healed. He brings us together. Then God assembles us, not the Avengers, not the Avengers. God assembles us and brings us together. And that word in both the Greek and the Hebrew has the connotation of joining or assembling, right? So it's, you could come up with a Christian version of Avengers Assemble. Bible man, man, assemble. (laughs) Ephesians 2.14, for he himself is our peace, our joining, who has made both one, here we even get the definition, has broken down the middle wall of separation and has abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of the commandments contained in the ordinance so as to create in himself one new man from two, thus making peace, joining us to God, peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby, thereby putting to death the enmity, not us. It's the separation that truly dies on the cross. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and those to those who are near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Why is this important? Colossians 1.20, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood on the cross. Peace is made. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight without blemish. And if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, you are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister or a servant. That's why this is a big deal. If that's, an, if, if that's an important, momentous thing that the God of the universe wants to break down the wall of separation and have peace with us, man, I want to tell people about that. What I don't understand is why some people don't want to hear that, right? It's amazing that we're even able to connect to God in any way at all. It's like an ant connecting to a human. It's amazing there could even be communication between the God of the universe and a human being. That's a miracle. That's the toughest thing for me to get over in my faith. Why would God even want to deal with me, right? But this is where we learn about it in detail. This is what God wants. He wants the unity and fellowship with his creation. 
that we understand the truth of things. God has to explain that to humans through these images, these metaphors, these sacrifices that are going to get carried on perpetually so that we can even understand what the relationship looks like because we're humans and he has to teach us in a way that we understand, right? So the imagery becomes important. And for us to understand what holiness is, we need to understand the mechanics of holiness. And holiness is about this discerning, assembling together as a people, giving something of ourselves to God giving something to the congregation, giving something to the priests, and living in a way that's holy. Therefore, Romans 5.1, having been justified in faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the means. Through whom we have also have access by faith into his grace, which we stand, and the rejoice in the hope, rejoice in hope of the glory of God. When it says through our Lord Jesus Christ, that's the sacrificial animal, right? That's the beast that's going. And we join with or assemble with God and that we give our lives as a living sacrifice to with Jesus. The fattiness of our life goes on the altar with the cow of atonement. All at the same time, they burn up on the wood together and they go up to God together. And there's a total image of this unity where they take the peace sacrifice, mix it with the burnt sacrifice, and then what's left of our life is what God wants to give back to the congregation. Those gifts that you have are things that you should be serving other believers with. And you should be ministering, or like Paul says, I want to be a minister to that. I want to serve anybody out there. There's people far away from God. There's people close to God. I want to bring those people together and bring that unity and that fellowship, and that's the goal. This is a super heady idea to get your head around, right? Especially for non-believers. In fact, this isn't something you even really get into with non-believers. Like, just talk to them about atonement and sin. Let's deal with that first. It's simple. It's easy. Little kids can deal with that. But this is more grown-up stuff. This is the meat that talk, Paul talked about. It's not the milk of the burnt sacrifice. It's a peace with God thing, which takes maturity, time, discernment, wisdom, fellowship with others, where I hope you caught that passage. It's not just enjoying each other. It's exhorting one another. That can be tough. We have people telling you, you got to work on this in your life because it's driving me nuts. Right? And people do those things and then being responsive to it and understanding that. The peace offering is how we live our lives. Right? It's not a duty, it's voluntary. And we get to do that. Leviticus 3. I was going to try to nail another one of the sacrifices tonight, but the sin and trespass next week go together so well that we'll be, it's just join it. So I figured this was a little bit shorter one. Well, it's not that much shorter. <laughs> Dear Lord and King, thank you for peace. Thank you that you assemble us, Lord, and you bring us together and you gather us. Thank you, Lord, for each person in this room that makes it a priority in their life to study your word and wants to join and do that in fellowship with this group. Lord, what a thing to celebrate, that human souls can come together in unity and in peace, and we can love you together, and we can study what you had to say. We can eat your words, um, and we can make them part of who we are. Let them go to the innermost parts of our being and purify and sanctify, Lord, and wash us clean. Um, Lord, we want holiness. We know we're not perfect. We get that. But we also know that to pursue holiness is what this is all about. So help us to do that with joy and excitement, that what you have to offer on the other side of holiness is a feast, a wedding feast. Um, and Lord, we want that. We want that more than any burden this world wants to put on us. So help us to worry not about our finances. Help us to worry not about our next purchase. Help us to worry not about how we'll be entertained, but Lord, help us to worry about how we can be more holy. 
and to put our focus on that and let everything else be added onto that. Um, Lord, bless us and be with us. Lord, we can't become holy on our own. We don't even have that ability. So Lord, we need you to change our hearts and mold us so that over time we can grow in, in peace and in love and we can become more like you each day. Thank you for that journey and the thrill of that journey. Thank you for your holy word that just says it and tells us what we need to do. All we have to do is do what it says. Um, so Lord, just help us to do that. Give us that strength. Help us to keep far from sin, to separate sin from our life. Lord, help us to be convicted. And when we're convicted, that we move. And we, we don't sit on our convictions forever. We do something about it. And Lord, help us to uh, have a heart to reject sin and not like it. Um, that we, we're not even drawn to it and it doesn't appeal to us anymore. Take away that interest and that desire. So whatever each person in this room is working on, we make progress on it, Lord. And in making progress, we become more like you. Um, and Lord, make those benefits and those blessings be tangible. Um, Lord, the rewards, we have to trust that they'll be there. And I just pray that this week, as we go out and we work on our sin and we, we do that distinguish, distinguishing and judging in our own life, Lord, help us to see the benefits of, of getting those things out of our life. Um, Lord, help us to see the benefits in drawing people together, in, in building bridges and making peace, um, and to, to deal with our friends and our family and to be the peacemakers in each of those situations, to be the people that point people to you and bring them closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.